Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising subject oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week it's weapons. Which is all about gifts glory, and of course, saddles. Nonsense, it's all about unicorns and chamber pots. Everyone knows that. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected at Unexpected Pod. We are proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special edition of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the history of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like herbs, hats or hairpins. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history and crucially how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of Christmas is in fact all about rioting and meat pies or that the history of the quilt is all about literacy, family bonding and flying carpets. Oh, I want to do that one. We'll do that one soon. Uh, The man sitting opposite me is the soldier of centuries. It's Professor James Daybell. And the man sitting opposite me is the major general of millennia. Mm. It is the wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. Nice. Together, we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly, highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week, one of us takes the lead. And this week, because I currently have a series on BBC Four, BBC Four, Britain's Armed History, the Sword Musket and Machine Gun, episode one. That's right, everyone. This week, it's on weapons. Weapons. I saw this last night. I thought it was terrific. And I'm not just saying that just because I'm sitting opposite you here. I thought it was excellent. That's very kind. 
Excellent. Now, weapons, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I wouldn't say that's an unexpected subject for history, but certainly there are all sorts of unexpected ways that we can explore it, aren't there? Yeah. All right. Top of your head. Top of my head. Something random for weapons. I I have a taxonomy. Uh, We haven't done a taxonomy for a while. A taxonomy Mm. is where you you sort of order things and you sort of think about how, how how you can sort things out into different sort of categories. How do we think about weapons as a taxonomy? So we can think about weapons themselves. And if you think about your program last night... Um, sword, musket, machine gun, you're looking at different types of weapons and how they developed over time. We can think about weapons in terms of formal weapons, so sword, musket, cannon, tank, whatever. You can think about improvised weapons, people using their bare hands to kill, Mm. pen gun, um, people using poison or gas. We can think about how technology advances over time so you can look at how you know the the way in which the cannon evolved and changed warfare we can think about uses of weapons how they're deployed training fighting techniques marksmen we can think about military tactics battles wars one of the things that i think came out really clearly last night is the way that you related the history of weapons to major events, mm. to peoples, to nations, to battles. We can think about diplomacy, peace, statecraft, uh, military force, balance of power, arms race, superiority. We can think about it in terms of wars, World War One, World War Two, the Cold War, the scary spectre that we have in 2017 about a new arms race. We can think about the morality and policing of weapons, you know, the non-proliferation treaty for nuclear arms. We can think of the Geneva Convention. You talked also about chivalry last night, which through the medieval period is a very important um, is a very important uh, force, the, I, I the power of the a, church. A lot, so much of it is to do with um, behaviour and rules, yeah. which is yeah, essentially yeah. going to sort of crystallise down in, with, with, with that issue of chivalry. And I, I think one of, the, out of all of those things you're mentioning there, the, the, the thing that really strikes me is how you can basically divide weapons in between the personal and the impersonal. Weapons that yep. you actually have to get up close and personal to kill, yep. use such yep. a, to beat yep. someone with or to kill someone with. And then, and then you know, the, the nuclear bomb is, you know, the sort of the, the far distant <laughs> one where you can, you, you can press a button and an intercontinental ballistic missile takes someone out. And yep. I, I think that's very interesting, the way that, that um, weapons changed this kind of relationship in combat. It's very different from sort of dueling as well, where there, yeah. was, there was that ritual all to yeah. do with weapons. But one of the things that I thought was striking was the way in which you, the show started and you were in the trenches in World War One, and you brought out these kind of macabre sort of hand-to-hand combat weapons, which could have been used in any historical period. You know, you've got, you've got the mace there, you've got the, the, the sort of hobnail yeah, the trench clubs. into the trench clubs yeah you know and 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 basically you know that kind of that kind of warfare has not changed over the centuries no. you know when you are up and close and personal and needing to sort of you know really kind of get down and fight you know what you don't want is an uzi or something like that what you want is something that is going to be really effective in very tight in yeah. very tight conditions so that that kind of baffled that kind of you know made me think about when we think about chronology and the development of weaponry over time there is also this kind of degree of continuity. Mm. And um, I mean, I think one of the things that I want to talk about a bit later as well is um, is who who uses the weapons and how historians yep. are responding yep. to that, yep. just to make make everyone out there aware that, that there's all sorts of fantastic research going on at the moment about who 
used what type of weapons yep. and when they were used. And I think more interesting and more important to that, it was actually society's response to say I think women the way that women murderesses actually what they use to kill people mm -hmm. and how society responded to it. it's a really interesting thing but i'm going to start with something which um is going to take us in a very strange direction because uh weapons of course are all to do with unicorns unicorns here we go okay this is uh <laughs> this is this is uh this is a transcript from from a trial at the old bailey in um 1730 where John Williams of St Andrews in Holborn was indicted for the murder of Joseph Hastings by giving him several mortal bruises with an unicorn's horn. <laughs> the 17th of August in 1729, of which bruises and wounds he languished till the 28th of the same month and then died. So here we are. Someone's been, um, been beaten to death with a unicorn's horn. So let me read you a little bit about it. There's quite a lot to unpack <laughs> in this paragraph. John Drew deposed that the prisoner came into the skittle ground with the unicorn's horn in his hand and said to him, Drew, this would knock a man down of an hundred a year. And the deceased, who was the owner of the horn, said to the prisoner, I desire you would carry my property where you had it, and added that he had been bid more money for that horn than any man at the ground had in his pocket, that upon this the prisoner called him a fancy son of a bitch and told him he deserved to have his head broke in with it. To which he replied, if he did, he should pay dear for it. And then he struck the deceased with the horn upon the stomach and pushed him on the jaw with the end of it. And the deceased fell down against a stump that was in the skittle grounds and afterwards struck up his heels that then the deceased said, you son of a bitch, what do you do this for? I will make you pay dear for it. Then he hit him again. And while he was on the ground, he hit him with the horn and then the horn being taken out of his hand, he fell a jumping on him, kicking him as he lay upon the ground upon his breast, belly, and members, giving him a great many kicks he knew not how many, that the deceased lay with his eyes shut for about the space of two minutes. He saw him after he was dead and found his head had been broken, his head and face bruised in five places, and that his private parts were bruised and looked like a piece of neck beef. Ooh, what a description. <laughs> it's extraordinary. He's really taken him to task with a unicorn horn he has well, he, do we know that it's a real unicorn i don't we, well, uh, yes i'm sure it was a real <laughs> unicorn that was the point no um so this raises a couple of things one is the the, the sort of the savage violence so he's yep. he's beaten someone to death with a unicorn horn and yep. then someone i think has ripped the unicorn horn out of his hand and then he's promptly used his fists and feet and yep. stamped and killed yep. this guy so two things about this i love um the first is that He's used a unicorn horn. <laughs> yeah. And we'll talk about that in a minute, about, about the history of unicorn horns. Um, and the second, well, I think it's, it's to do with the value of this unicorn horn. They're actually arguing about the price. He wants a certain amount of money yeah. for this unicorn horn. And then he's turned it into a weapon. Now, if you look at the sort of the history of weapons, one of the interesting things is that the majority of, of kind of spontaneous murders like this happen with, with a weapon that simply lying around yeah um it's it's most of them a chair, leg, a chair. Uh, i'm looking looking around here yeah. i i'm in james's study and if i wanted to kill him i would probably start with a coffee mug <laughs> I'm, i'd move on to a boomerang uh, and, and a champagne bottle from, champagne my, from bottle my wedding and some excellent screwdrivers so yes. those would be the way oh, i've got an Oppenel knife there have you have yes several Oppenel knives yeah so i could cause you significant yeah. damage just from what's lying around here um 
he's gone for this unicorn horn. So they're trying to sell the unicorn. Unicorn horn was very expensive. So the history of unicorn horns is really interesting. Obviously, it's not a unicorn horn. It's the extended canine tooth of a narwhal. Ah. So um, that's a whale with a kind of an enormous protruding horn, you yes. know, essentially. Yes. Front yes. Face. Yes. So these were known to exist from the 14th century. There's one at Powderham Castle. Is there? Yeah, I didn't know. We that. should go and we should go and do a we should go and do a podcast on narwhal horns. That's extraordinary. How big is it? Yep. Enormous. Like uh, eight feet tall. Two, 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 two and a half meters. Yeah. Uh, is it sort of yep. twisted and not? Uh, I can't remember. Okay. But it's it's scary looking. They're, I wouldn't want to be attacked with one. No, they're very very beautiful things as well, and um, because they were so rare, um, they could be the most valuable thing in the ownership of a head of state. Mm. There was one that was given to, to Elizabeth I, which had actually been carved and, and bejeweled, that was worth £10,000, which is the same cost as a castle. Yeah, enormous amount <laughs> yeah, of money. Absolutely. So um, there's there's a curious history of unicorn horns here, which I think which you, you must be aware of this. From Good, the, yes, yes, and they stuff. were used for medicinal oh. purposes as well, which I'm going to talk a little bit about later okay. on. Mm. I mean, one of the things, thinking about that, one of the things that strikes me is... Um, and I was going to talk about earlier on, is about the ubiquity of weaponry. You know, that, that um, you know, living in the UK today, we are not allowed to carry guns, we're not allowed to carry knives. Um, but throughout lots of periods of history, people would have been weaponed up. People would have had, would have had a, you know, a, a, a sword. Certainly, almost everyone, ordinary people, would have carried knives. A knife was one of the basic commodities that you'd have had with you, basic tools that you'd have had with you. You'd have eaten with it, you'd have cut things with it, and you'd have also used it for self-defence. And this is really prescient at the moment when we have, you know, debates, particularly in North America, about the right to carry guns. And this is something that is absolutely enshrined in the, you know, in in the Constitution. It's something that people feel, whatever you think about it, it's something that people feel, you know, very keenly about on both sides of, of the debate. Um, but, you know, when, when we're thinking about that kind of debate, it, it is worth thinking about it in, in perspective. Where did that, where did that, you know, where did that come from? You know, the right to bear arms and the importance of having an armed militia at a time, you know, when people needed such things. There's a really interesting um, aspect to that in, uh, in British history, English history. Um, and it's all to do with Cromwell and the, the Civil War. So yeah. um, the Civil War is very much linked with the army. The, the country was taken control of by the army. And ever since then, there was a major amount of fear. The army was associated with tyranny, essentially. Yeah. It was to do with imposing someone's idea on the people. Um, and it's the opposite to the Navy. So the Navy is associated with all these sort of wonderful sort of ideas of trade, of wealth, of protection from invasion. It's all very positive. Yeah. But the army is is very different. It's um, always been seen in this country, certainly was for hundreds of years, um, about tyranny. And there's always been a, a major concern of arming arming the people yep. um, yep. To, to actually con- control the people. So there's yep. there's always That's been this yep. extraordinary um, sort of dichotomy in the relationship between the British public and the two significant armed forces. I mean, the, arm, the army is not only an external force that, you know, that you, you, you use during time of war, but it's also a, a force for putting people down, for controlling insurrection. And throughout history, you're absolutely quite quite right. You know, it's been used in exactly that way. The other thing that I think we, you know, looking at that at your your example that you throw up there. The other thing, the other way of looking at an unexpected way of looking at weapons is from a medical point of view mm. and looking at the severe um, you know, injuries inflicted on people 
and and of course you know along with that goes the development in medical techniques you know so understanding how the blood works in in yeah. in, in in the body learning how to cure people learning how to, to yeah. treat wounds but the knowledge is just one part of that the other part of that is actually physically being able to depict it so it actually yep. had a massive impact on the artistic representations yep. of the human form yep. because yep. it's all very well saying um this is how you deal with an artery that's been cut by by something but then you've got to draw it so that someone yeah. in the future can actually learn the lessons that you've discovered yeah um so weapons in that respect were are sort of crucial to history it's all to yeah, do yeah, with, yeah. With, with actually saving things for future generations saving yeah. something is really important what's more important than saving someone's life yeah which brings me to my example here hmm. um what do you got what have i got i have that Mm -hmm. um, which is a yeah that's a that's a man astride a war horse um he i presume it's a man it's not a lady inside um male armor but it's um definitely a it's an armored knight on an armored horse but it's not any old armor it's utterly exquisite it or it almost looks like uh, a tapestry yeah um it's that's taken um teams of people months and possibly years to actually yep. make something this is um the entire thing's like like a piece of jewelry actually yep. isn't it, it looks like yep. lace yep i've got it in color here um what is this that that's a that's a there's the the gauntlet oh uh, yes yeah, so there. that's um is that is that the armor that it used to be blue i don't think so okay so some i know that some kind of there was, there was a way of making armor kind of shine with a sort of bl right. a blue sheen so imagine the first person turning up on the tournament field with his with his bright blue armor he would have looked cool but um yeah this has got um it's different colored as well so it's not just just exquisite in its shape it's 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 very um it's very beautiful in its color so it's it's a steel gauntlet that i'm showing a picture of here with with gold work on it really elaborate gold work and this was part of a a suit of armor uh, that was made in 1550 for the Polish monarch Sigmund II Augustus by the master armourer Konrad Lochner, uh, a German uh, master armourer. They now, were the best. What I'm what I'm interested in here is what we've been talking about so far is the idea of weapons and warfare and using weapons to to fight and to maim and to kill. What I want to think about here is how we look at the unexpected history of of weaponry. So if you if you looked at a if you thought about this suit of armor in a standard way, a standard sort of form of interpretation, you might think about it in terms of craftsmanship, you might think about it in terms of of knights and, and warfare, but what I want to think about it here is its significance as a gift. Yeah. And its significance in terms of picking up on what you were saying about about memory, this survives in the royal armory in the royal palace in Stockholm, mm -hmm. and this was made for the king of Poland, as I've already said, by a master craftsman. This is an ultimate in in high status weaponry. When he died, it was gifted by his sister Anna Jagellon, who is a marries into the Swedish royal family uh, to her brother-in-law Johan III the king of Sweden who, who who lived through ruled through until until 1592 and what's interesting is when her when when Sigmundson um, dies Anna is by right the ruler of Poland um, she gives this gift of this armor 
to her brother-in-law, the King of Sweden, partly out of out of affection, but also as a way of cementing his support for what she wants to do. Yeah. She doesn't want to rule as a, as a woman by herself, but she in fact wants to pass the, um, the throne to the young Prince Sigmund of Sweden. And, and, and she needs her, her sort of Swedish brother-in-law's um, uh, agreement in this. So the, so, the, so the armor here acts as a political, diplomatic and dynastic gift from, that is cementing generations. So very different from, from you know, how we think about it in terms of a piece of sort of mere weaponry. And it's part of a whole series of gifts uh, and forms of inheritance from Poland that are brought to the new king's coronation. Um, Sigmund, the young, the young, the young king, becomes king of Poland and the king of Sweden. He's then kicked out of Sweden, and the gift that the gift of armor then becomes a, a sort of symbol of somebody who is a failure. Okay, nice. and it passes through. Um, to Gustavus Adolphus, one of my favourite yeah, yeah. uh, sweet of, of Swedish monarchs. What's interesting is that it survives in the royal armory in 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 Stockholm, and I think this is worth is worth dwelling on. Why does a nation decide that it is that it is going to preserve this kind of ceremonial armour? Now, in its early days, it's partly because what you've got is a new dynasty of Vasa kings. You've got these Renaissance monarchs in Sweden. And this is to basically trumpet their glory. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. That, that spectacular sort of chivalry. So people would actually, visitors would actually be able to get into the armory, mm. which was in the palace. They'd actually be able to get in and actually see it. But what you see, if you look at the history of it now, the Royal Armory now, which is which is which is in the Royal Palace, right in the centre of Stockholm, all of this stuff is there on display, and there's very interesting, uh, very very interesting collections now. In the 18th and 19th century, they didn't just collect weapons, but they also collected a lot of c- ceremonial coronation 
clothing. Um, there are the uh, the early cots of some of the sort of young young royals. Mm. Um, and also, there's a, if you go downstairs, there's a wonderful display of all the carriages, okay. uh, including something that looks like a sort of 18th century My Little Pony yeah. with sort of plume <laughs> plumes on it. So, so what I want you to think about Ot, is the is the is the weapon as gift. And as sort of memory object, I like it as a diplomatic gift because it's actually it's the opposite of a threat, yeah. isn't it? If you're yeah. actually so so, you know, the thing that, that nations were concerned about was being threatened by other nations to secure their borders, yeah, and, and you know to protect their protect their heritage, protect their language, protect their culture. If if you're actually presenting someone with a suit of armor, especially an exquisite one, then you're 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 providing them with protection from you. Yeah. As much as anything yeah. else, so yeah. I don't think you can get a better symbolic offering of peaceful intentions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, giving somebody a gauntlet, for example, passing over a gauntlet mm. to somebody is a sign is a sign of peace. But used in a different way, to strike somebody with a gauntlet yeah. is to issue a is to issue a threat. Mm. So a weapon. So yeah, I love I love that. So so a weapon. You know, it is in fact something that's neutral. It's about it's about it's a neutral object. It's about what people do with it yeah. that changes it. Mm. I think the, the, what, what people do with it's great because I mean, I've I've been recently reading a PhD by someone called Anna Jenkin who got in touch with me when I was researching for my program on weapons, and it's to do with um, murderesses in London and Paris in the. Um, in the late 17th and early 18th century. It's one of the most interesting things I've read for a very long time. Anna, it's brilliant, and thank you for getting in touch with me. Um, I have to read it, Anna. Yeah, yeah you'd, you'd love it, actually. Um, I, what I think is really good about it is it, it, it takes this kind of um, sort of two two sort of starting points. One is that women are, are associated with poison in yep. murders, and I, I've heard that a lot, these kind of claims that women are seven times more likely to poison someone than are men. And um, she's kind of exploded it and said, it's, it, you know, it, it's not true. And it's it, there are there's a difference between murderesses in Paris, in France, where there was a complete obsession with poisoning um, to London. Yeah. Um, and it's also it's linked with this idea that w- women particularly murdered people in the home. Yeah. So, so the assumption is they use poison and they did it at home. Um, uh, that's not true either. Um, she's proved that actually not only were the murders much more violent and less premeditated than is suggested by poison. You've got to pre-plan your poison. You've got to get your poison. You've got to cook up your curry, put it in the curry. You know, that's how you do it. It takes a bit of planning. Um, But it was actually much more spontaneous than that. They were, uh, women were killing, killing their husbands, other women, whoever was around with objects that were just simply lying around as Mm. you would. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Fire pokers, chamber pots, pint glasses. Some poor (laughs) got murdered by a chamber pot. Um, So she's proved that, murdering uh by murderesses mm. was both more public in that it wasn't just done at home mm. it was done out in the open like that poor chap who was killed with the unicorn horn at the beginning mm. and it was more violent than we think now what's really fascinating about it as well is that she's demonstrated that the press response to to murderesses was in, in in many ways unique. It was very different uh, to the way that they responded to to male murderers, mm. um, and th- it was always 
somehow linked up with with social issues with um the way that the women's role was was changing at home with um threats to male identity threats to male male um professions it's absolutely extraordinary and it meant that in the early 17th century that these female murderesses because of what they did became famous and because of that they really became one of the very very earliest examples of true celebrity as we know fame for for what they did yeah so in in the sense of murder pamphlets and plays and yeah. and that kind of thing put on yeah i mean poison throughout history has been used as a weapon to you know bump people off you know and you can think of that you can trace this back to the ancient world you know and you know various people sort of po- you know poisoned uh throughout time it it takes off in the in the medieval period and it, it you know you look at the look at the descriptions of it and it seems that it is pretty easy to get hold of stuff, you mm. know, with the rise oh, of the true. apothecary. Yeah, it's incredibly easy, easy to get to get hold poison of these dresses. things. You've talked to me about a poison, poison dresses before. before. Okay, so so um, the really good depiction of this in um, the film Elizabeth, wonderful film with Kate Kate Blanchett, and you've got um, Robert Dudley, so he becomes the Earl of Leicester. Um, uh, who is the, one of the sort of supposed sort of uh, suitors uh, or favourites of Elizabeth I. Uh, I was going to say lover, but he's certainly a fa- favour favourite uh, of Elizabeth I. And the it's de- the the film depicts him with a maid of honour uh, who is wearing a dress that was gifted to the Queen. Uh, and you suddenly see her sort of, you know, she's kissing uh, Dudley. And then you suddenly see her writhing around. Uh, and basically the dress has has been poisoned, this dress that has been given to Elizabeth. And in order to understand this, you need to understand um, the way in which uh, a 16th century dress was made. And you'd have this sort of tight bodice, uh, which would be full of wires. And the, what the poisoner would do would be to basically unpick the padding, and which would expose these bare, wire, sharp wires. You tip it with poison, and then the poison would pass through the body. No. Would pass into the body, and it, what, what's interesting about the sixteenth about um, early modern poison is that it acts in it can act in in several ways. It either acts by you know as you you were talking about earlier on through ingesting. So you, you know you might you might ingest arsenic or you might ingest mercury, and this would sort of you know just mess up your insides, cause all sorts of bleeding, asphyxiation, all sorts of things. Or what you do is you inhale vapors. Um, so. Throughout the 16th century, um, people are really careful about um, perfumers. So people who make perfume, you always see them being hauled up into court um, and examined about about various practices, particularly post 1570 when Elizabeth is excommunicated, and basically the you know the the gloves are off. Uh, any good Catholic can you know uh, uh, could kill the Queen in in all good conscience and be and be pardoned or it goes through the skin. So there are lots of representations of it throughout uh, early modern literature. Wonderful, rich seam of this is revenge tragedies. You know, and you've got poison, all sorts of poison things, poison gloves, poison, mm. poison books. There's a brilliant um, example of this in The Massacre of Paris um, by uh, Christopher Marlowe, in which a character, the old queen, fatally accepts poisoned gloves, remarking, 
Methinks the gloves have a very strong perfume, the scent whereof both make my head to ache, the fatal poison works within my head, my brain pan breaks, my heart doth faint, I die. So this is about this is not about the poison passing into the through through the skin. This is about this is about the, the these vapors. The best example uh, that I've come across is the strange case of the poisoned pommel. Uh, which is uh, an attempt to poison the saddle mm. of Elizabeth I uh, by a man called Edward Squire, mm. who's a sort of ordinary uh, scrivener, so a, a writer uh, in, in, in London. Um, he later becomes uh, a, a sailor, um, but not before that, uh, becomes a has, a has a post within Queen Elizabeth's stables. And so this, of course, means that he has intimate access to to the queen so he can he can basically get you know get hold of of um you know he can, he can be very sort of intimate uh and and sort of get to get close to where she is uh has very good access and there is a bizarre set of circumstances he ends up sort of going on a on a, an ex- expedition to the west indies with drake he gets imprisoned in captured and imprisoned in spain and then there's a whole sort of very sort of complicated um uh, sort of run of events, which I, w- I, I won't go into here. They're very, very detailed, and people disagree about it. Um, but what happens is he gets um, he gets um, he gets caught up with Jesuit priests connected to Robert Parsons, the, the sort of famous um, Jesuit priest, and the Walpole brothers. And the theory is that he was persuaded to assassinate uh, the monarch mm. by basically poisoning her pommel. And we've got a really good description of it here. It's described in two pamphlets that are purported to be about letters, um, probably written by Sir Francis Bacon. But we've got here an examination from 1583, 19th of October, where Edward Squire is before all sorts of uh, important legal people, Sir John Payton, the Attorney General Cook, Solicitor General Fleming, Francis Bacon, various other people. Um, And he says... um, He refers to uh, when Walpole, so in other words, this Jesuit priest, persuaded me to be employed against Her Majesty's person. He asked whether I could compound poisons. I said no, but that I had skill in perfumes and had read it in Tartaglia. And he he refers here to um, the Italian mathematician Tartaglia. Um, so read in, in Tartaglia of a of a ball, the smoke whereof could make a man in a trance and some die. Walpole said that would be difficult, but to apply the poison to a certain place was the most convenient way. And so he then he then goes on about how to sort of how how he might ad- administer uh, the 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 poison. Um, Certain poisonous drugs, whereof opium was one, were to be beaten together, steeped in white mercury water, put into an earthen pot, and set a month in the window, then to be put in a double bladder, and the bladders pricked full of holes in the upper part, and carried in the palm of my hand upon a thick glove for the safeguard of my hand. This makes me think that basically it might the poison might have sort of gone through the hands so he's wearing a very sort of protective mm. heavy glove here um he then talk what's interesting then is he then talks about how he got hold of this poison and it seems that you know it's pretty easy to come by 
I bought two drams of opium and five of mercury water at an apothecary's shop in Paternoster Row. So in other words, in, in London, towards the further end near Dr. Smith's house, one ingredient at the POW, Bucklesbury, and the other two in Newdigate Market last July and carried them six or seven days. He then talks about, you know, about basically mixing this all together, putting it in the sun, leaving it on a windowsill, and then the person that he's staying with, the dog, the little puppy that he's got... <laughs> this la- is not going to end well, la- is it? ...laps it up. Oh, no. And no. then, and then, di- and then the dies. dies. He said, I never, saw, I never saw this afterwards, and I think it died thereafter. It's like a plot in a Disney film. It, it's appalling. That's appalling. The so, puppy dies. Oh, oh, well, poison saddles. Is is I'm it? just going to finish off yeah. um, by talking about, so because we're talking about weapons, I'm going to yes. talk about not using weapons because I think it's one of the most interesting things about it. And the best example of this is the 18th century, um, the Royal Navy. I'll go back to my comfort ground where so many people associate um, British naval sea power and the success of British naval sea power ruling the waves with destroying their enemies with actually fighting. Now, I've got a handful of examples here um, where they're called fleet seizures. This is when enemy fleets were captured without a shot being fired. And there are a handful of them. They're really, really important. 1793, so very early on in the French Revolution, um, the entire Mediterranean French fleet was captured. Uh, It was 22 ships of the line, eight frigates, and the entire arsenal and all of their shipbuilding stores without a shot being fired. 1796, we did exactly the same to the Dutch at Saldana Bay and then the Texel in 1799. Between those two, there were 17 ships of the line and four frigates. And the best one of all was the uh, Danes. Everyone knows about the Battle of Copenhagen in 1801. In 1807, we captured their entire navy. Um, 18 ships of the line, 11 frigates, two smaller ships, um, and Russians at the end of the Napoleonic War. We captured nine ships of the line, the Tejas. All of these dramatically affected the balance of European sea power far more than any naval battle that was fought during the entire period, and they all happened without anyone dying. (laughs) So there you go. Using the Navy, not using the Navy. How does that work? It was actually all to do with threat. Hmm. It's all to do with credibility. And Hmm. so for me... I'm going to kind of explode this open up a bit. It's actually the use of a weapon. It works best. Pirates are very good at this. It works best when your reputation is so fearsome that no one wants to fight you. Um, and that's all to do with credibility. So mm. pirates did it by uh, Blackbeard's famous example. He'd set fire to his hair and his beard and he'd be mm. terrified. Mm. Um, and they'd have um, uh, skulls and crossbones and, and maybe uh, little... Um, sound glasses to show that your time was running out all to do with reputation and to get that reputation across in a convincing incredible way and the royal navy had the same problem but they got it absolutely right and it was these enormous um, fleet seizures where Mm. that changed so how do you do that how does it work especially it even works on on a individual basis i could be standing here with a sword and you could take one look at me and go you're standing wrong there's just yep. no way. Yeah, yeah, you're either yeah. going to use that, it, you're yeah. not going to hit me with it, or you don't know what you're doing. In which case, I might as well not have the sword. I saw you using a sword last night. But, I, would, I would not mess. That's <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I can do. <laughs> um, so it's actually to do with, it's not just having a weapon, it's to do with credibility and competence. That does slightly change when you've got a gun, and all I've got to yeah, do is yeah, point yeah. at yeah. you and pull the trigger. Uh, but even then... Assuming it's loaded. Well, you're assuming it's loaded, but also um, handguns are incredibly inaccurate over... Um, over you know anything over sort of 10, 15 feet. It really yep. has to be yep. you know really quite a distance for it to work. Um, so this this sort of sense of of um, being credible and actually 
understanding the truth of someone um, is intricately linked, intimately linked with weapons. So mm. are they bluffing? Are you telling the truth? How do you identify that through behavior? How do you bluff it? Yeah. Um, and again, yeah. again, it comes Poker down face. to this, this question of yeah. behavior. Before we go, and this is the schoolboy in me coming out, what is the weirdest weapon you've come across in your in all your all the research that you did for this BBC four series? Ooh, the weirdest weapon. Um, there's a there's a kind of storage case full of them at the um, Royal Armouries at Leeds, and um, uh, it's actually the National Firearms Centre. It's kind of associated with yep. it. It's where they keep all the firearms. And believe it or not, they actually have loads of really cool weapons from the cold war and they they've got but james like, bond weapons just, i mean they oh. have got cigarette lighter guns they've got pen guns comb guns they've got the, the most ridiculous pen things. guns yeah they're wonderful so it would be probably be one of those um what? oh no, I, I did come across a, a gun it was a lady's gun um that you hid in a book so um Ooh. you'd sit there with your bible or whatever it is or your 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 um jane austen novel on your on your lap but then you'd open and it the up book would fire um no you'd open it up and inside the kind of a hollowed out cavity was right. your, was your um so oh, no, the gosh. book wouldn't fire, but there was a gun hidden in the book. Um, oh, and, and, and a really amazing walking stick gun. Beautiful Ooh. thing. Um, so it's a little shotgun. Um, and you just twisted the handle and it made a trigger pop out. My, one of my favourites is this. They're also in the Royal Armoury in that? Sweden. Uh, an axe gun. <laughs> 17th century axe gun. That's not a that's made up. Uh, no, no, no. That's just a- someone saying two words. Absolutely. That's like saying a pickle. Axe gun. No, no, no. It, it, absolutely terrifying. Wow. Could you imagine that through your head and then being shot? Yeah, no, I can't imagine that. So there we go. That is, that's weapons done. Brilliant. We've done unicorns, axe guns. Gifts. Poisoning. Dead puppies. Yeah. Uh, Disney plots. Disney Disney plots. Brilliant. We Thank should do the, the, the history, the unexpected history of Disney. Unexpected cartoons. Cartoons. That's what we'll do next. Very good. Now, before we go, I'm going to talk about my latest project. What, what's your latest project, Sam? My latest project is called History Masterclass. And it's for all of you who want to learn history, who want more than just um, a book talk from one of our country's best historians, but you can't commit to a university degree. Come along to one of our History Masterclasses. I set it up with Susie Lipscomb. I think a lot of you will know from telly and from books. And um, we've basically got a lot of our friends who are the best historians in the country to come and to offer um, seminars where you can learn in groups of about 30 in exquisite historical locations. You can learn from the very best. And it's not just about sitting there listening to a book talk. It's going to be a sort of a seminar set up. You'll be hands on with documents to be able to ask all the questions that you want. And it will help you really pinpoint down um the information that you want to know about the past. So do check out thehistorymasterclass.com. Excellent. And that's how that's how people find out about this. That is. We're on Twitter as well, at the History MC. Excellent. Which is quite fun. So we're um we're spitting out rhymes and uh facts as well. And rhymes, rhyming facts. Rhyming facts. Yeah, but it's a new way for everyone to um to learn history that isn't a podcast, it isn't a book. It's new, it's different, and it's gonna be awesome. And you get to meet you in the flesh. You do. What more and, what more could yeah. you ask? And for? we'll get we'll get um, the Professor James Daybell to do one as well. So <laughs> he can tell you he can do he'll do a, a masterclass on poison dresses. I'd come to that. Poison dress poison dresses and and maybe uh, secret codes and ciphers Ooh. and spies. I want to come to that and not mine. Yeah, I think I think that's very wise. <laughs> <laughs> go, go. I want to come to yours. Well, very Nelson's Navy. Oh, oh, oh mm, good, good, mm, good. Yes, it's all unexpected facts. Excellent. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, thank you all for listening, everyone. Don't forget, you're the third and most important member of this podcast. Do please get in touch with your ideas about the unexpected history of weapons. Um, yeah, send us a message on Twitter. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>
Well, if you like this podcast on weapons and you want to see a series that tells you what they're really all about, then do search for my name on the iPlayer and watch BBC4 on Thursdays at 9pm for the next couple of weeks. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.